This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast that features lectures and conversations that happen at UC Berkeley. Find more talks at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Welcome, everyone. I'm Sujay King Liu, the Dean of the College of Engineering, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this year's Minner Distinguished Lecture in Engineering Ethics featuring uh, Dr. Barbara Simons. She's the board chair of Verified Voting, which is a nonprofit organization, it's a, a nationwide organization that, is, that advocates for best practices in voting. Uh, before I go further, I'd like to just acknowledge today's sponsors, um, the Society of Women Engineers and the uh, Women in Computer Science and Ed- Engineering, or WICSI. These stu- two student organizations are co-hosting uh, today's event. So thank you very much for, for doing that. So recognition in the back there. It's a full house today, which is wonderful. Um, I'd also like to welcome members of the Dean's Society who might be here in person or online uh, uh, on the web. So thank you for joining us today. Now, I hope everybody here knows that in the College of Engineering, we strive not only to uphold our university's um, strong traditions in excellence and access in research and education, but we also strive to be the exemplar for transforming our students to become socially engaged and inclusive leaders. As then this is to help ensure that we are innovating new technologies that address the grand challenges of a society in a fair and equitable manner so that every citizen of our global society can thrive in a safe, secure, and sustainable world. Now, key to achieving this transformation are programs such as the Minner Distinguished Lecture. So let me tell you a little bit about this program. In the year 2011, Warren and Marjorie Minner established this Minner Endowment, which supports the college in our mission to instill in our students a strong sense of social responsibility, ethics, and leadership. We do this by sparking conversations and critical thinking on societal issues facing engineering students, researchers, and practitioners, and society at large. Today's speaker, Dr. Simons, whom I'm proud to note is a Berkeley engineering alumna, exemplifies the value of social responsibility in engineering and computer science. In fact, in recognition of her outstanding technical contributions and her leadership in promoting inclusion in the field of computer science, we honored um, Dr. Simons here earlier this year with the 2019 uh, Witte at UC Athena Award for Lifetime Achievement. So at this point, I just want to mention that uh, Witte stands for Women in Technology Innovation, at the University of California. We sponsor annual awards to recognize outstanding leaders uh, who promote uh, diversity in in tech. And so we actually are soliciting, or we're opening, uh, we actually are welcoming nominations right now for um, award winners for next year. So if you can think, if you know of any worthy recipients, please uh, visit the website and submit your nominations. 
All right, so coming back to Dr. Simons, when she was a graduate student here at Berkeley, she co-founded the Women in Computer Science and Engineering Group, or WICSI. And this is a networked advoca- net- networking, advocacy, and outreach organization which has a stellar tradition of attracting and supporting female graduate students. So I'm really delighted that we have here today the co-president of WICSI, Cecilia Zhang. Um, she's going to help introduce and welcome Barbara to the stage. Cecilia is a fifth-year PhD student working uh, in Professor Ren Ng's group on uh, computational photography and machine learning, and she's been a member of WICSI since the year 2015. Cecilia? Thank you, Dean Liu. Um, so I'm honored to be here today representing sorry, uh, representing WICSI, Women in Computer Science and Engineering, and also across the College of Engineering. On behalf of our students, faculty, and staff, it's such a pleasure to welcome Barbara Simons to, cam- to campus. I'd like to share highlights of her career with you. In the, 19, in the 1970s, Barbara started taking computer science courses at the State University of New York in Stony Brook. The field was still in its infancy, and it wasn't long before she advanced to graduate-level coursework. She was admitted to Berkeley's graduate program with Turing Laurent Dick Karp, who's uh, also sitting in the audience, um, uh, as her advisor. In 1981, Barbara earned her PhD in electrical engineering and computer science with her dissertation on deterministic scheduling theory. After graduating from Berkeley, Barbara began a 17-year career at IBM, starting off in the research division before transitioning to policy as a senior technology advisor for IBM Global Services. After, gradu- uh, sorry. After retiring from IBM in 1998, Simons served for two years as the president of the Association for Computing Machinery, the largest computer society in the world. During her tenure, she was invited to participate in a study of internet voting that had been requested by then-President Bill Clinton. Barbara's interest in voting practices was born. As a member of the National Workshop on Internet Voting, she helped conduct one of the first studies of internet voting in 2001. In addition to serving on the board of Verified Voting, she has served on the board of advisors of the U.S. Election Assistance Commission and co-authored the report that led to the cancellation of Department of Defense's Internet Voting Project, known as SERVE, in 2004 because of security concerns. She co-authored the July 2015 report of the U.S. Vote Foundation entitled The Future of Voting, End-to-End Verifiable Internet Voting. In 2012, she co-authored with fellow computer science scientist Douglas Jones a book about electronic voting, electronic voting machines called Broken Ballots, Will Your Vote Count? Suffice it to say that Barbara has a lot to say for today's minor lecture topic, Can We Recover from an Attack on Our Elections? Please join me in welcoming Barbara Simons. Wow, uh, this is an amazing audience. Uh, can you hear me okay? Uh, thank you all for showing up and being concerned about this really critical issue 
Um, so I'm going to start kind of in a negative way, but we're going to end up somewhat positive. So that's, that's an incentive to stay on. Uh, you've all, I'm sure, uh, seen what Robert Mueller said when he testified before Congress, where he said there were multiple systemic efforts to interfere in our election. And this was actually, I think, the most emotional part of his testimony. It's when he really seemed to care, talking about the threats to our elections. Uh, he's not the only person who's made these comments. James Mattis, the former Secretary of Defense, said that Putin tried again to muck around in our election this last month. This was in reference to the midterms. And we are seeing continued efforts around those lines. Uh, and Christopher Wray, the FBI director, said Russia attempted to interfere with the last election and continues to engage in malign influence operations to this day. So we do have something to be concerned about. The intelligence communities also have been uh, pretty consistent along these lines. The Senate Intelligence Committee, which, by the way, I think is the most functional of the Senate committees, they really do do bipartisan work. And I think it's because they've been briefed and both, both parties understand how serious the, the uh, threat is. They said that the Department of Homeland Security says that the Russian searches done alphabetically probe, probes, the probes included all 50 states. Now, we were told initially that there was a small number, and then it went to 29, and then 39. They're saying all 50 states were probed. And it consisted of research on general election-related web pages, voter ID information, election system software, and election services companies. Service companies. Now, probing doesn't mean that anything was actually hacked, but as the computer scientist in this audience, I'm sure uh, appreciate, if you probe a system, who knows what you've done to it? You might have implanted malware. You might have implanted a back door. You might be planning to come back later and doing something. So we don't know what these probes meant. Uh, the uh, report also said, and people have been consistently saying, that there's no evidence that any votes were changed. Um, note they don't say no votes were changed. They just say there's no evidence that no votes were changed. And the reason they have to say that is that we don't know. We can't, we, uh, paperless voting machines can't be checked. And even in states that have paper, they frequently don't do an adequate check of the paper because the paper is tabulated by computers, and those computers might have been hacked. I'll get this right. We also know that many countries are capable of attacks. Um, Russia, as we've already talked about. China, as we also know, they have a state-sponsored hacking group that has, been attacked, has attacked U.S. utility com companies, among others. And then, of course, there's the famous North Korean attack on Sony because they didn't like the film, The Interview. Um, and Iran has also been engaged in a lot of uh, malicious cyber activity recently, not surprisingly given the tension between the U.S. and Iran. Now, this is some of the countries we know have the capability of attacking, uh, of co committing cyber attacks. There are many others. It really doesn't take a lot in the way of resources to do this kind of thing. So there are a number of myths about elections that we've been hearing saying that they are secure, and I want to um, shoot down two of those key myths. The first is that because voting machines are never connected to the internet, they can't be hacked. They're secure. And again, as the computer scientists in this audience know, that's not a definition of security. Um, for one thing, in the case of voting machines, you have to program these machines to tell them who is running for, for each election, who is running, what their place is on the ballot, what their propositions are, and so on. This programming is done by, by separate computers. And these computers typically are attached to the internet at some time, 
or they might be, it might be done by small two, two or three person companies and who knows what kind of security they use. So if any of these machines that is used to program the voting machines has malware inserted into it, that malware could then be transported to the voting machines when the information from these computers, from these computers is inserted into the voting machines. So, so the fact that the voting machines themselves may not be attached to the internet does not prevent them from being hacked. Uh, and, and of course, there's the, some of you may remember the Stuxnet virus, which brought down the Iranian centrifuges. Those centrifuges also were not uh, connected to the internet, but they were brought down nonetheless. The second myth is that the, there are so many different types of voting systems that it's impossible to rig an election. And anybody who th stops to think a minute about the Electoral College realizes that you don't have to rig the whole country. Because we know, how, at, at least in terms of presidential races, how certain states are likely to go. What matters, of course, is the swing states. So if you really want to change an election result, you're going to focus on the swing states. And even there, you may not have to focus on the entire state. You may focus simply on a few swing districts. And that, in a close race, might be sufficient to change the outcome of a race. So uh, the fact that there are a great variety of systems out there really doesn't protect us. So the question is, how did we get here? And since I think this is supposed to be a lecture on ethics, I'm not sure if this is an ethical thing or not, but basically this is a story of the inappropriate use of technology. And it's really come back to haunt us. So computer scientists have been involved from the very early days. In the 1990s, Peter Neumann, some of you may know, he's at SRI just down the road, uh, and Rebecca Mercury warned of paperless systems, but of course their warnings were ignored. And as was mentioned in the intro, I was on a panel uh, that, was, uh, that was put together by the National Science Foundation at President Clinton's request. Uh, that panel, in 2000, that panel contained election officials, social scientists, and computer scientists. And when I started on that panel, I thought internet voting sounded like a really cool idea. I really liked the idea, you know, everybody says, oh, you can vote from home in your pajamas. Well, you know, that sounded appealing to me. Um, fortunately, there were security experts on that panel, uh, in particular Avi Rubin, some of you may know, who very quickly disabused all of us of that notion that internet voting might be a cool thing to do. And as a result, the panel recommended against internet voting for the foreseeable future. Uh, nonetheless, in 2002, the Help America Vote Act was passed with minimal input from technologists, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. And then in 2003, California started purchasing paperless voting machines. And David Deal at Stanford was appalled to hear about this, and he started an online petition. Uh, a number of us signed it. In fact, he got a large number of signatures, uh, which, of course, didn't matter whatsoever. Um, and there was this dramatic hearing uh, in Santa Clara County, of the Santa Clara County Board of Supervisors that I attended. NPR was there. I mean, this is really in the early days. NPR was there. And there was a row. The front, the front of the uh, hearing room, there were about six or seven computer scientists, a number of them prominent uh, computer scientists, a few students, and a few people like me who were freshly minted. Um, I'm sorry, not that, later. Um, anyway, there were a number of computer scientists there, and the vendors were given a large amount of time to push their wares, and each of the computer scientists was given 90 seconds. Uh, David and I beforehand had gone down to the Santa Clara County Board of Supervisors and, took, and talked to one of the members of the Board of Supervisors and convinced him that this was a bad idea. But we made the mistake of not talking to all five of them. And so we lost that vote two to three. Now, an interesting thing happened. Um, 
because of our pressure, they did say if at some point paper <coughs> is required by the state, that the vendor would have to retrofit the system to provide paper. Subsequently, paper was, was required by the state, and so the vendor had to pay for that. So they got something from our efforts, but they didn't really listen to us. Um, and then, as a result of this, David started verified voting. Uh, I was on the first board. The board consisted of David, his wife, and me. We had no money, no staff. We didn't know what we were going to do. Um, we just decided we had to do something. So that was how verified voting was born. In 2004, the Hopkins-Rice report came out on Diebold voting machines. And this is the first time that somebody had gotten access to the software. And, I'm sorry, when an independent computer security expert had gotten access to the software to examine it. And the results were really shocking. Uh, I mean, these systems were, was, it was very badly written. And as an example of what they did, they, had, they encrypted the data. They were going to encrypt the data, the votes in the machines. They encrypted it using a single encryption key, which was in the source code in plain text. And, <laughs> and, you, and there it is. You can see it on the screen, F2654HD4. So anybody who got a hold of one of these machines could figure out what the votes were in the machines and could change them. And these machines, Diebold machines, were widely used starting in Georgia in 2002 and up to and including 2018 in Georgia and in a number of other states. Georgia especially was, was particularly egregious. They finally have decided to get rid of them, but uh, it's been a long time. And we don't know if any of these systems have been hacked. We do know how to hack these machines, even remotely. Uh, that's something that Alex Haldeman has shown. It's on our website if you want to see a five-minute New York Times video showing how to hack a Diebold machine remotely. Just go to the Verified Voting website. So computers were introduced into our elections without an analysis of the risks. Uh, and this was triggered first by Florida 2000 with the hanging pregnant yada yada chads. But the law that did it, that changed, that, that the Help America Vote Act wasn't passed until 2002 and, and it was pushed by the midterm problems that happened in Florida in 2002. So Florida really contributed significantly to where we are today. Uh, so the Help America Vote Act allocated almost four billion dollars for new voting machines. Uh, now, uh, the vendors, of course, came out with lots of assurances. The machines are secure. And something which is very appealing, of course, to election officials is you just push a button at the end of the election and you get the results, which means you can go home at a decent hour. And uh, believe me, running an election is an exhausting job, and so election officials really love that idea. I mean, I would too if I were an election official. Uh, they are federally certified. I'll talk about certification in a minute. It's, it was pretty meaningless in this case. And there was a deadline for spending the money. So that created a gold rush mentality. Everybody wanted the latest and the greatest. They wanted the new shining voting machine so they could show their, their, the, the people who are voting in their area that they've done the right thing, they are modern, they've got the best stuff. So the early use of computers in voting, uh, initially there were a lot of these paperless machines like this Diebold machine I was just talking about. Uh, they are called direct recording electronic, or DRE. And what DRE means is that the result is stored directly in the electronics. So basically, the votes are stored in the memory of the machine. Nowhere else, at, at least with the paperless ones. So, um, these, so you probably have seen pictures of people push, you know, touching the touch screen to vote for candidate A, and it votes for candidate it shows, and B lights up. Uh, people have complained about that a lot. If I were going to rig an election, I wouldn't do that. 
because that's so obvious. I mean, there are much better ways to rig elections. But in this case, what that almost certainly means is that the screens were out of calibration, which happens a lot with these machines. And it also means that there's a bit, an element of non-determinism here. Because if I touch A and B lights up, I don't know which one actually got my vote. Could have been A, could have been B, who knows? As I say, they were also badly engineered. Not only could you not recount them, but any time anybody, any independent experts got to look at the software, they found major problems. Um, and these machines, when they would fail, or if there were an insufficient number of them, would generate long lines at the polls, because you have to vote on the machine, in, in the case of these paperless DREs. So there was a big push for what we call paper trails. Um, and I have to say, uh, as somebody who was involved with a lot of this stuff, we were... There are many stages where we were incredibly naive, and this was one of them. So in response to our call for paper trails, the vendors retrofitted these machines with something called voter-verified paper audit trails. So these were supposed to be hard copy that stored the results of your vote as a backup in case there's a problem with memory or if you want to do a recount. What they came up with was continuous thermal rolls. These are like the gas, stations, the gas station receipts that you get. They easily fade, and they're hard to count. They were often small fonts, which made them hard to read, and they were typically under transparent glass, which pla transparent, transparent plastic, which also made them hard to read. Uh, MIT did a study uh, on these systems to see if people actually checked them, and what they found out was that most people didn't bother to validate their votes on these voter-verified paper audit trails, and in many cases, they didn't understand why they should, because they didn't know what they were there for. So there was no, no motivation to, val to validate them, and they didn't. So there were also, in the early days, there were some voter-marked paper ballot systems. Um, and that would be a case where the voter would mar manually mark the ballot. And these, in, in most cases, were counted by scanners, which, again, as you all know, are computers. But I think a lot of people who aren't technical don't appreciate the fact that scanners are computers, uh, and therefore are vulnerable to the, everything that computer is vulnerable to. And the scanners could be at the polling place, or they could be centrally located. So there are two different kinds of systems. Some of these early scanners had calibration problems. Also, if they were too sensitive, they might not pick up your vote. I'm sorry, if they were too sensitive, they might think that a stray mark is an extra vote, which would be an overvote, and um, would disqualify the vote. If they weren't sensitive enough, they might not pick up the vote. So they had problems, but... If there were long lines, or if, the polling place, or if the polling place scanner is down, voters could deposit their ballots in a ballot box at the polling place, and the ballots could be scanned later, which was a big plus compared to these DREs, for sure. Um, unfortunately, in some cases, election officials, uh, the val volunteers didn't even realize that, that this could be done, and the long lines continued, even though there were ballot boxes where people could have deposited their ballots. So testing and certification. So these, there, are these, there are voluntary voter guidelines, voting system guidelines at the federal level. They're voluntary, although a lot of states have adopted them as requirements in their states. California, for one, at least did initially. That's been changed slightly. Um, when they were originally created, they had minimal security and accessibility testing, and accessibility is the buzzword for something that's easy to use by people with disabilities. Uh, and computer security experts were not involved. I mean, these things were sort of like... Um, the standard you might come up with for a toaster uh, or some other product, if it drops, if you drop it, it should still work. It should be able to withstand heat and cold, things like that. But not the security that was so critical to these systems. 
So the first significant uh, independent testing was done here in California. Uh, Secretary of State Bowen did it, and she ran on this. She did something called a top-to-bottom review. And by the way, a number of, of UC faculty were, and students were involved with this study. Um, and this, this study tested all aspects of the three systems that were being used in California, security and accessibility, among others. And this is the first time that I know of when there was a meaningful test of the accessibility of any of these machines. They were being sold on the basis that they were accessible. But the accessibility testing that was done showed that they had actually pretty poor accessibility in many, many ways. Um, and that everything else was bad, too. The security was bad, the usability was bad. And these machines were just badly engineered in every respect. And then the Ohio, in Ohio, the Everest study followed the California study, and it confirmed all the problems discovered in California and found additional ones. And as, as further studies have been done, they tend to support the fact that these machines were just badly engineered. So here's what we should not do. We should not have internet voting, including cell phone voting and blockchain. And I will talk about blockchain also. Uh, this is a very old slide. Do you, what do these things have in common? They've all been hacked. Now, I, I haven't added to it because I ran out of space, but, uh, and also because it's a nice slide the way it is. This doesn't include, for example, the attack on the, the DNC. It doesn't include John Podesta's emails. It doesn't include a lot of things that we know about that happened recently, or at least in the 2016 race. So I think it's kind of obvious when you think about these things that local effect election officials are really not well-equipped to stand up to a massive attack from a foreign country, from political operatives, or even a rogue hacker. They are underfunded, under-resourced. They don't have good, good access to computer security expertise. Um, and, and they just aren't, it, it's, it's a hard job for a well-funded major corporation to protect themselves. And to expect local election officials to be able to do that is, is, is just, you know, it, it, does, it won't work. So internet voting. So we define internet voting as the return of a voted ballot over the internet. And I want to distinguish this from placing an un a blank ballot on the internet. So that's something that is used, as, you'll, as I'll mention later. We don't consider that internet voting. There are, there are issues with that, too, but we, most of us feel that the risks are work it, worth it to avoid actual internet voting. So you could vote over the internet via a web or as an email attachment. And as I say here, email voting can be even more dangerous than web-based voting. There is some confusion about whether or not email voting is internet voting. Again, sort of like scanners or computers, email voting, of course, is internet voting. You can use personal computers, smartphones, smart tablets, and so on. There is research on using crypto to do internet voting. Um, what's interesting is that the major, the, the people who have been doing this research, most of them say, we are nowhere, ready near for, we are nowhere near ready for that. Ron Rivest, some of you know, uh, has, has basically come out very strongly against internet voting, even though he understands how to do, use crypto to do it. Ben Adida, a former student of Ron's, who actually wrote a system for internet voting, also said this is not the time to do it and is working on a, a different system uh, that he hopes will make voting safer and more secure and facilitate risk-limiting audits, which I'll talk about momentarily. So vulnerabilities of internet voting. Authentication, it's very hard to authenticate the voter. You can have malware on the voter's devices that can change the vote without the voter's knowledge. Uh, and again, what you see on the screen may not be what is sent out over the internet. Yet another thing that I think a lot of people don't understand. So just because your vote is presented properly on the screen does not mean that's what's going out. It doesn't mean that's what's stored in memory. Um, 
Denial of service attacks can prevent ballots from reaching the election official. Penetration attacks on the vote server can change votes. The votes, of course, cannot be audited. And you can have vote buying and selling or voter coercion. Now, I should say vote buying and selling and coercion are issues with any kind of remote voting, not just internet voting. There are no regulations for internet voting. No independent standards, no independent testing, no government oversight, no legal accountability, and no ability to conduct a recount. The National Institute of Standards and Technology was asked to develop standards. They basically said, we don't know how to do it. They threw up their hands. They said, malware on voters' personal computers pose a serious threat that could compromise the secrecy or integrity of voters' ballots. Nonetheless, internet voting is used in about 30 states in the United States for military and overseas voters. Uh, fortunately, that's a relatively small group. Now, the MOVE Act was passed in 2009 as a way of getting around this push, and it provides online, ballot, online blank ballots 45 days in advance, at least, so that voters can download the ballots, print them out, mark them, and then mail them back in standard mail. Um, and if you're a military voter overseas, you can use expedited mail. So for most, almost all military voters, if, you, if the MOVE Act is followed, you can get your ballot back in plenty of time. And I like to think of internet voting as a solution in search of a problem. Uh, a lot of people think that internet voting will increase voter participation, and especially participation by young people. There is no evidence to that effect. There, it has been a major, there was a major British Columbia study that in fact found that there was no appreciable increase in either group. That what they found was the same people who would have voted already voted over the internet. Blockchain voting. So blockchain voting is sort of the latest buzzword. It's a blockchain is a distributed data structure that could be multi-owner or single-owner chains. Uh, the owners have to be in agreement. You could have collusion among owners. That's one of the risks. You could have outside attackers who penetrate the server. There is no central authority to police the activities. With voting, a blockchain, it, it, you're almost certainly going to have a single blockchain because it's going to be owned by the vendor or the local election official. And with blockchain voting, all of the other internet vulnerabilities are still present. So they, blockchain voting, whatever you've been hearing about it, does not solve the internet voting problem. As the National Academies of Science said in a 2018 study, where they said it does not solve security problems. Nonetheless, Votes is a company which is pushing blockchain voting. There is no federal or state certification. They claim they don't have to be certified because they're not really a voting system, but in fact, they, you know, they're collecting votes. There is no disclosed source, no open testing by third parties, no testing in mock elections. They claim to have done security audits, but nothing was made public. And um, they are nonetheless being used in West Virginia for overseas voters in 2018 primaries and midterms. The city, of De city and county of Denver just basically brought them on to run their military and overseas voting. Uh, they are funded by, they're basically funded by Tusk Philanthropies, um, which um, has some links to the, the people involved with Tusk who have some pretty strong links to the Democratic Party. Um, and they may be used in the Alaskan Democratic Caucuses, so we're, some of us are fighting the use of them in the caucuses. So we have a solution, so that's the good news. We have a solution. You need voter-marked paper ballots, you need a strong chain of custody, and you need statistically sound manually post-election ballot audits called risk-limiting audits. So we need well-designed pa paper, obviously, so the text, may, the text has to be easily read readable by the, by the voter. And we have examples where badly designed ballots may have changed the outcome of an election. Perhaps most notoriously was the butterfly ballot. But in Broward County, Florida in 2018, there was an unusually large undercount for the Senate race. And um, the ballot design there was, was very poor. Uh, I actually have slides I could show later. It's not part, I, 
I'm not going to include it right now, but if someone asks, I can show you pictures of the Broward County ballot, which was just badly designed and may have changed the outcome of that Senate race. So voter-marked paper ballots, there's been a move towards them. That's the good news. In fact, Louisiana will be the only state after all these years that will be totally paperless in 2020. And I have to say that's a big change from when we first started doing this work. Nonetheless, there are some paperless jurisdictions still. Kansas, I've listed them here, Kansas, Kentucky, New Jersey, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Texas. Pennsylvania is in parentheses because in, through, through 2016 and 2018, 83% of the population of Pennsylvania voted on paperless machines. Now, Pennsylvania is finally going to replace these machines. The governor issued a $90 million bond issue to replace them. And the question is, will all of the districts in Pennsylvania actually do this before the 2020 election? And that's why there's a question mark there. So hand-marked paper ballots are widely used and inexpensive. There are ballot marking devices, which are relatively new. I mean, there were some old ones, but there's a new batch of them come on the market. They use a computer like a touchscreen to produce a voter-marked paper ballot. They should, I say they should have good accessibility features. I don't know if they do or not, because I don't know of any testing that's been done. Well, I'm sorry, Philip, you said it wasn't, was negative for one of them. Pennsylvania, Texas, both kind of failed. Yeah, but it depends, again, it depends on the ballot, on, this, on, the, on the actual machine. Um, they are both, both types of vote, paper ballots and scanners, are, uh, and, and uh, ballot, the ballots produced by the ballot marking devices are counted by scanners. So there are potential problems with both systems. Handmarked paper ballots, the voter might inadvertently undervote. And uh, for example, in California, we have these horrendous ballots, which are, have races on both sides. And I know of at least one person who, who forgot to turn his ballot over, and therefore missed a whole bunch of races. Um, also, if you vote by mail, there's no corrective feedback from the scanner if it's scanned locally. Uh, for example, if you've done overvoting. Now, Again, this is, this is a vote-by-mail issue, I think more than a paper ballot issue, but that is an issue. With ballot marking devices, they, are, they print the voter selection in human-readable text, but some of them only print out the vote, what the voter voted on and do, this says nothing about the races where the voter didn't cast a vote. And this seems like a particularly bad way of doing things because the voter might not have might have forgotten to vote for something or might have voted for something and it's not recorded and doesn't notice that. So th again, this is, this is a bad design. Some of the new systems also have security issues, which I won't go into now, but I can mention if it comes up in questions. They typically have a barcode for reading by scanners, um, and that, that is an area of contention. Um, but in all cases, they must have human-readable text that's used for audits and recounts. And again, it's critical that the voter verify all the ballot selections. And again, that's, that's a question. Do, will they verify them all? And there's ongoing research in that area. So strong chain of custody. Here's just a few examples of things you have to worry about. You can have inspectors from both major parties. Hard to forge seals for ballot boxes is, is important for ch to check for the tampering. But you have to check the seals, seals afterwards, custody logs, secure, surveillance videos. And you have to check that everything matches at every step of the way, at the polling place, in transit, while in storage, while tabulated, and while audited and recounted. So post-election ballot audits. So this is really the crux of what I want to talk about. Preliminary results must be reported before the audit is done. Now, again, remember, we're, what, the reason we need to do audits is that we can't trust the computers that tabulate the votes. So we need to audit these computers, even if they're not called computers, if they're called scanners or whatever they're called. The audit must be completed before the certification of the results because the audit could find that there was a problem. 
you, it must be done manually, and the ballot selection must be random. Uh, and basically, the gold standard of audits is what's called risk-limiting audits. As you can see, recommended by Presidential Commission, National Academies, the Senate Intelligence Committee, and it was developed by UC Berkeley Statistics Professor Philip Stark, who's sitting right there. I have to say, Philip's contribution was huge. Before Philip got involved with this, we didn't know how to do the audits properly. So California, 1965, did a 1% manual recount in 65. But the law didn't say what, what you're supposed to look for. It didn't say what happens if you find problems. It didn't find a problem. Uh, there was no notion of escalating the count. I mean, it was still for its time, ahead of its time, but it didn't really solve the problem. So as, as, you know, in more recent times, in the 2000s, as we started thinking about this problem more seriously, people came up with different schemes such as a tiered audit, 1%, 3%, 5%, depending on how close the results are. So if the results are very close, you have to look at more, which makes sense intuitively, but it still doesn't solve the problem. So basically, it wasn't until Philip looked at this and came up with mathematically, the mathematical way of doing it that we know how to do it. Um, Basically, risk-limiting audits guarantee a large, have a guaranteed large pre-specified chance of correcting the wrong reported outcome. So what is an outcome? What is a wrong outcome? It's wrong if what the computer says differs from what a manual count would have said. And basically, the largest chance that a wrong outcome will not be corrected by the audit is the risk limit of that audit. So if the risk, if the risk limit is, is 10%, then there's a 90% chance. This is a lower bound. It's at least a 90% chance that the audit will lead to a full recount that corrects it. So basically, um, with risk-limiting audits, there are two, two factors, um, and that is how close is the race and what is the risk limit, and, and that determines the initial sample size that you start with. Um, and you randomly sample, the random samples conti continue, the random sampling continues until sufficient evidence exists to confirm the computer declared outcome or results in a complete manual recount, which typically will happen if the outcome was wrong. I mean, that's when you do want to do a manual recount. So there are various types of risk limiting audits. Uh, the ballot level comparison audit is the best, is the most efficient kind. That's where you basically randomly select a ballot and compare it with its cast vote record. That's the, the represent, representation in the computer, and you check to see if they match. Uh, there are also comparison audits at the ba ballot level, which are less efficient, but you may need to do that at the batch level, excuse me. But you may need to do that if you can't do the ballot matching. And the reason you may not be able to do the ballot matching is that some of these computers are designed to make it difficult to do the ballot matching. So you have to do something like a, a batch level. Uh, there's also a ballot polling audit, which doesn't really do the comparison at all. Instead, it polls the ballots, sort of like an exit poll, but you're polling the ballots instead of people, and the ballots don't lie, unlike people. Um, and, and, and basically, um, the, as I say, these are developed, these different systems were developed because the voting machines just weren't designed for that. There is research ongoing to develop voting systems that will facilitate risk limiting audits. And we, you know, that can't come soon enough. So there have been a number of pilots of risk-limiting audits in the United States. The state of Colorado passed a law requiring risk-limiting audits for the state, and they, they did it in 2018 for the full state. Uh, Rhode Island passed a similar law. They'll be implementing theirs in 2020. There have been pilot risk-limiting audits in a variety of states that I've listed here. There are a number of, of groups that we are, many of us are working on it, and Philip has been very hands-on in this effort. Um, 
and then Verify Voting, again, the organization that I'm board chair of and Flip is on the board, we have something called an audit roadshow. We're doing outreach to election officials. Basically, in order to do these pilot audits, unless we can get someone on high to, to mandate it, we need to get the cooperation of election officials. Uh, fortunately, when these pilot audits are done, the election officials tend to like them because they can then say, we can prove to our voters that the results are correct. So once you get them to do it, they like it. The hard part is getting them to do it. And that's, that's where a lot of work has to be done. There also has, there's also a lot of work that needs to be done to help election officials do these audits because they involve statistics. And most election officials are not deeply immersed in statistics. I think that's a fair statement. Um, so here's how we can validate 2020. We focus on the swing states. We can't do the whole country to begin with because parts of the country are still voting on paperless machines to begin with. I mean, we can't, we can't audit them at all. But in addition, we don't need to audit everybody because with the Electoral College, you kind of know how certain states are going to go. What really matters are the swing states. So we need to focus on the swing states, and I've listed some of the three key ones, I think, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Fortunately, they all have or will have paper ballots, although, as I say, Pennsylvania hopefully will be completely paper by 2020. We ideally would like to conduct statewide risk-limiting audits. Um, if, if we don't get the top election official in the state to require it, it's too late to get laws passed, by the way. It's really too late. But if we can get the top election official to require it, that's great. But if we can't, ideally we can still do what we call pilot, a pilot audit. If we can do a pilot statewide audit that's not officially sanctioned, but we're working with election officials to do this, we will be able to show what the result was, if it was correct or not, because we've done the work, even if it's not called an official state uh, audit. So that's the only way we can think of to get around the, the absence of laws, aside from uh, maybe having the, the, the Secretary of State, in the case of Michigan, I think we might get the Secretary of State to actually mandate this, which would be fantastic. But in most states, that's not the case. Um, and if we can't do statewide, let's at least do what we can do. Let's try to focus on swing districts. Let's try to focus, do it wherever we can in critical areas. Um, this has um, two benefits. First of all, if there is an attack or just a software bug, I mean, because these things are computers, there could be bugs. If something like that happens, there's a good chance we'll find it. And also, it can, be, it can discourage someone from doing this in the first place, from attacking in the first place, if they know that, that there's a good chance that the attack will be discovered. So uh, those are good reasons for, oh, and the third reason is uh, it could prevent the loser from claiming the election was rigged, if you can show that the results were correct. So there are lots of good reasons for focusing on risk eliminating audits. That's what I'm devoting my efforts to. That's what Philip is devoting his efforts to. As I say, we need the cooperation of local election officials, and we need a national campaign, because this is a really huge undertaking. Uh, it's late, and there's a lot of outreach that needs to be done. There's a lot of training that needs to be done. We need to get volunteers and staff in these places to help the local ele election officials do these audits. They have to do them. We can't do them. I mean, legally, this is something that's done by election officials, not by volunteers. But we can help them. And that's what we need. And if we can get that, um, I think there's a good chance that we can avoid the hacking the 2020 election. But it's a big if. So that's it. <laughs>